Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good evening, children of the night. Last weekend was the film festival that I mentioned before, and I'll make sure to mention any highlights for horror films, which I probably won't be able to get done until next week, or maybe the week afterwards. It's a lot of movies to sort through. In the meantime, I did see a film that you can find streaming right now. 
Before I Wake, directed by Mike Flanagan, starring Kate Bosworth and Thomas Jane, who you'll likely remember from The Mist. Uh, that's the movie, not the television show. Oh, and uh, The Expanse from Sci-Fi Channel. The story in the film does revolve around a child, but manages to not be an out-and-out creepy kid story. The ending of the film is also surprisingly and pleasantly optimistic. I do enjoy the stories where everyone dies, but from time to time it is nice to get one where there is a positive ending. And speaking of comments that are overdue, I mentioned, uh, what was it, a month and a half ago that I had started Lauren Bucus's Broken Monsters, and I'm loving it, but still haven't finished it. Real-life responsibilities get in the way of leisure reading time, right, Children of the Night? But let's hear some stories. Samuel Poots is a 20-something writer living in Northern Ireland, where he spends most of his time in his own head, only emerging to, quote, Pratchett at people. His work has previously appeared in the anthologies Whispers from the Abyss, Volume 2, and We Folk and Wise, and he is a daily contributor to the tabletop hobby website Beasts of War. Listen with me to Samuel Poots' The Face at the Window, originally appearing in Suspense Magazine, June 2015. He always heard it before he saw it, the panting, the desperate, unceasing panting. These days, he tried his best to ignore it, tried not to look. If he pretended it wasn't there, then it wouldn't be. If he pretended it wasn't there, got on with normal life, and never turned to face the window, then it wouldn't be. He'd be like everyone else, ignorant of its presence. Except it was there. And every night he would turn and look into the mad, rabid eyes, the wild grin, the pale skin framed by hair the color of grave dirt, the face at the window. Its eyes never left him, and never looked anywhere else, and still it kept panting, panting like a sick dog through teeth like marble headstones. The bathroom window was on the second floor. He had checked the outside wall during the day. It was smooth red brick. There was no way someone could climb up there. The only handhold was the lip of the windowsill itself, yet that never seemed to stop it. It was back again that evening. He could hear the panting as he poured himself the first drink of the night. No matter where he was in the house, he could always hear it. Though it never turned up at any other window, he would always hear it. He dropped an ice cube into the glass and turned up the volume on the TV. It didn't do anything to drown out the panting but at least it gave him something else to focus on. He stared at the flickering screen. The Lord of the Rings. Fantasy. As far away as possible. When he was a child, he had had dreams of going on a grand adventure like that, of stepping out the front door, pack in hand, and setting off across the world. He would see the pyramids, the Great Wall, America, all the glories that were out there, far away from here, where the face could not follow. Reality put a stop to those dreams. Reality and alcohol. Wouldn't have mattered anyway. The face always followed, no matter where he moved. He'd moved to countless houses, had gone all over the country, and even changed continents on one occasion. He'd tried hotels, hostels, top-floor apartments. Yet every evening, as night came in, it would show up at the window. He remembered trying to tell people about it when he was a child. 
He had been diagnosed with night terrors as he woke each night screaming. He would lie down in bed and see its eyes burned on the inside of his eyelids. They never looked at anything else. The doctors were deaf, though. They didn't hear the panting, and they didn't hear him when he'd said that the face had been there long before the night terrors had begun. It seemed particularly loud that evening. He needed another drink. He got up from his chair, ignoring the battle between good and evil on the television, and reached for the decanter of alcohol. His hand knocked a framed photo, and it fell to the carpeted floor with a thunk. He looked at it for a moment, lying face down, before going back over to the chair. They had left him. They hadn't seen it either. He could remember the shouting now. There's nothing there, she had shouted, waving at the window behind its curtains. He hadn't said anything. He'd been too drunk at the time. We can't stay here anymore, she had said. He could remember tears standing out in her cheeks. I can't have you scaring the children anymore. You're drinking and you're boogeyman. It has to stop. She said something else, but he couldn't make out what it was. The panting had grown louder in his ears, and he had begun fumbling for the hip flask he carried. Her eyes flew to the flask as he produced it, and she let out a scream of pure rage. The flask was snatched and flung against the wall, amber liquid dripping down to porcelain tiles. There's nothing there! She grabbed the curtains in one handful and tore them away from the window. The face was there. Its eyes were on him, ignoring her entirely. He fled. He fled and hid and didn't come out until the sun of the next day had appeared in the bedroom window. By the time he emerged, they had gone. He had looked down at the Winnie the Pooh bedsheets and felt a gulf open up inside him. This thing had haunted him his entire life. It had made his life a living hell. No one else could see it. No one else saw the horror of the face. Only him. That night he sat in the bathroom and waited for sunset. The curtain still lay on the floor, and he could see the sky darkening through the window. He waited for hours as the last rays of light faded. Only when the sky was completely black, and the first stars had begun to appear, did he hear that familiar panting. A pale hand came up first, its black-nailed fingers gripping the windowsill. Then the face came into view, its eyes already on him. That was one of the worst things about it, he thought. It never looked for him, never searched the room. It was always looking right at him. The two looked at each other for a long time. Then he reached over and picked up the long handle of the broom. At one end, he had taped the kitchen cleaver. With it, he pushed the latch up on the window and swung it open. He thrust the makeshift halberd out, aiming right between the thing's eyes. It dropped out of his sight before he could make contact. The broom was yanked from his grip with such force that it left burns in the palms of his hands. He reached forward and slammed the window closed, just as the face reappeared. It seemed unchanged although the grin looked a bit wider to him. He slumped down against the bathroom wall, weighed down by utter defeat. He had tried to turn his life around. He had started making an effort to get back to work. He had attended AA meetings and managed to clear all the drink out of his house. He even tried to contest for the custody of his children, though without much hope. But he never dared look at the face again, fitting heavier curtains and never looking in the window's direction, even in daylight. It hadn't lasted, though. Eventually, the relentless panting, the unending reminder of its presence, had driven him back to the bottle. He never saw his children anymore. She had taken them far away. He had learned a lot at AA, really he had, but he'd never learned the most important lesson, the serenity to accept what he couldn't change. The film had finished. So the scotch. 
He'd meant to go out and buy more. He'd never sleep now, was nowhere near drunk enough. Hadn't had enough to drown out its presence. He considered turning on another movie, but he really couldn't face the idea of staring at the screen anymore. Probably should try and sleep. Had work tomorrow. He managed to keep this job, at least. He stood at the foot of the stairs. The landing light was off, the darkness yawning above him. Each step up the stairs was like walking into an open gullet, the empty dark ready to swallow him whole, finally tired of taking bits out of him bite by bite. His hand trailed against the wall until he encountered the light switch. Empty darkness fled, replaced by empty light that stung his eyes. The bedroom was the last door on the landing. Before that was the kid's bedroom. His eyes skipped over it quickly. Then he found what the dark had fled to. Opposite that door was an opening, a patch of black where the landing light didn't reach. He was sure he closed the bathroom door. He stood there, foot still on the top stair. He could go back downstairs, go back to the chair and his escapist films. He didn't have to walk past that doorway, didn't have to walk past the face. Anger flared like cold electric light. The face controlled him. It controlled him more than alcohol ever had. He had blocked it out as best he could, defied it, shouted and tried to fight it. It had never laid a finger on him, yet it still managed to take, to corrupt, to spoil everything of value, to pervade his very existence. His hand shook as he reached for the light switch. A pair of yellow curtains, black mold beginning to speckle their floral design, hung opposite the door. Reaching out, he took them in both hands. He pulled. The cloth ripped and fell, the curtain rail clattering loudly as it came away from the wall. He hadn't expected that. The noise startled him, and for a moment the fear grew stronger than his anger. Then he looked into the eyes. It was watching him as it always did, eyes wide, skin pale, its mouth stretched into a death-rictus grin. The sight of it dropped ice down his spine. The breath froze in his lungs, and he had to fight down the urge to look away, to run back to his bed in his bottle. With arms like lead weights, he unlatched the window. The face's eyes never left him, but he saw its hand reach up and push flat against the glass pane. The window swung in, letting in a cold blast of night air. For the first time he could remember, it looked away from him. Its eyes darted around the room. Then they returned to him, and it began climbing in through the open portal. It was like watching a stop-motion nightmare. It pushed one lank arm in at first, squeezing its shoulders through after. It oozed into the room, its limbs unnaturally long. Yet every motion was precisely controlled. Then it was there, crouching on the bathroom rug, grinning up at him as his chest heaved. No one believes me, he whispered. The face cocked its head to the left like a bird of prey. You, you have always been there, he said, pointing a quivering finger. Always. You never let me have what I wanted from life. Nothing was mine. Well, now I'm letting you have what you want. He threw his arms wide. Here I am. Come and get me. The creature didn't move. What are you waiting for? You've been at the window long enough. Now you're in. Come on! Still nothing. Its panting grew louder in his ears, an interminable heaving that would not stop. Why? he said, and his voice became a wail. Why aren't you killing me? Why? He slumped down to the ground, back sliding down the wall. 
He looked up to find the eyes inches from his own. It was crouching over him, balanced on all fours, its face pressed up close to his. He could feel its breath, a cold, clammy sensation with no smell at all. Then its chest shook, a wheezing, wrenching laugh bubbled up. The noise filled the room, filled his world. He felt himself draining away, leaving nothing but cold despair. Please, he whispered. The face wheezed its rattling laugh. Outside, the sky began to lighten. That was Samuel Poots. The face at the window is read by Brian Alexander. Brian is a futurist, writer, speaker, and consultant in the field of higher education and technology. He used to teach classes in Gothic horror and continues to blog and publish research along those morbid lines. He and his family live on top of Vermont's Green Mountains, half off the grid. Thank you, Brian. Our second story of the night comes from Rick Kennett and Chico Kid. Rick Kennett is a lifelong resident of Melbourne, Australia where he works in the transport industry and has an interest in cemeteries, ghosts, and all things spooky. He is the author of Presumed Dead and The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea and is co-author with Chico Kid of 472 Cheyenne Walk, Karnaki, The Untold Stories. His short stories have appeared in several magazines, anthologies, and podcasts. Chico Kid lives in Middlesex, England, where she works as a graphic designer. She is the author of Printer's Devil, Demon Weather, and The Werewolf of Lisbon, and is co-author, with Rick Kennett of 472 Cheyenne Walk, Karnaki the Untold Stories. Her short stories, some of them involving her erstwhile hobby of bell ringing, have appeared in magazines, anthologies, and book collections. The Steeple Monster is Chico's first podcast appearance. Children of the Night, lend me your ears for The Steeple Monster by Rick Kennett and Chico Kid, which originally appeared in Aureolus No. 7, 1992. On receiving the usual curt card of invitation from Karnaki for dinner and a story, I duly arrived at his Shane Walk address around half-past six that evening. We took hands, and with a gesture he offered me a seat, not a word being spoken by either of us. Karnacki was not a man to talk until he had something to say, and moreover, I well knew his dislike of being questioned about his story until he was ready to tell it. Not long afterward... Arkwright entered, followed a few minutes later by Jessup and Taylor together. Throughout the meal, Karnacki was his usual taciturn self, and it wasn't until later, when we had made ourselves cozy in our accustomed armchairs by the fire, that he filled and lighted his pipe in his slow, measured way, began to speak. I'm afraid I must tell you, at the outset, that this is the story of a partial failure. I've been in Essex for the past fortnight, to Fenwick St. Giles to be precise. I received a letter from the vicar of the place asking if I could take a look at the bell tower in his church. Apparently, 
the steeplekeeper had gone up into the belfry and had never come down. A search of the tower and the church found no trace of the man. It was, as the vicar wrote, as if the steeple had simply swallowed him. It was late afternoon when I arrived at Fenwick Railway Station. The church itself, about a mile distant, was visible from the platform. Seen from that distance, the church steeple looked singularly askew is the best word I can come up with. I put this down to the play of light and shadow from the westerning sun, distorted by the smoky atmosphere of the station. Yet, twenty minutes later, when the dog cart brought me into the church grounds, I received something of a shock for I saw that the steeple was indeed disproportionately squat for the size of the building. I could not say why, nor could I shake the odd conviction that the proportions were all wrong. Its walls were tremendously thick, the wooden louvers of the belfry were noticeably deep-set in their embrasures, which reminded me of battlements or the walls of a prison. What was even stranger, however, was the fact that one of the walls did seem of normal thickness. I determined to take measurements as soon as possible. Naturally, I asked the vicar if the steeplekeeper, Carlson by name, may have had some reason to fake a disappearance, but he could offer no explanation. Carlson, he declared, was a man of good character. At thirty-three, some had thought him too young for the responsibilities of steeplekeeper and tower captain, especially as his predecessor had been the last of the old generation of bell ringers in the district. Although Carlson had served his apprenticeship by having been a bell ringer for nearly twenty years, he was an outsider which would have immediately put the bell ringers of the place against him, and I gather he had stirred up further resentment with his eagerness to bring more progressive ways to the tower. His first action had been to change some of the ringing methods which dated back to the sixteenth century. However, the vicar was quick to stress that he was not suggesting foul play in the disappearance of Carlson. There was, he told me quite emphatically, something decidedly uncanny about it. I saw Carlson enter the bell tower by the outside door late one evening two weeks ago, and though I followed a minute later, he was nowhere to be seen inside. It was as simple and as quick as that. The door to the church was locked, though that leading to the tower stairs was ajar. I called several times, but my voice just went echoing round the empty tower and was never answered. Then, the queerest thing of the whole matter happened. The church bells began ringing all by themselves. I thought then that Carlson must have had an accident in the belfry. A proper wind had sprung up from nowhere and blew down the staircase as I mounted. The bells stopped as I reached the belfry. Carlson was not there, though for an instant I thought I heard him call out on the wind which was quickly blowing itself out, and presently all was still and quiet again. And since that night, no one that I know has seen Carlson since. By this time, dusk was upon us, so I resolved to keep my inspection of the church bell tower to the morning. The vicar showed me to my room, and after unpacking my instrument trunk, I turned in, for I was dog-tired from the long train journey. I slept quite solidly until about two, when I was wakened by the sound of the bells. I sat up and listened to what was certainly no peal or disciplined ringing, but a jangling, clangling riot. I threw on a dressing gown, stowing my revolver in its pocket, and went outside. There was a bit of moon getting through the clouds, and by its light I made my way, 
none too bravely, to the bell-tower door. It was locked, and I was just turning away when I was startled by the presence of a figure standing close to me in the shadows. I only began breathing again when I saw it was the vicar looking up at the steeple in wonder and dread. Is this how it was ringing the night Carlson disappeared? I said to him above the cacophony. He nodded his head in a jerky, nervy way. Then he said aloud what I had been thinking and fearing. Something is running amok up there in the belfry. It certainly sounded as if there was something heavy and massive thumping about in the belfry and blundering against the bells. Then the bells stopped, and in a queer way the silence was worse than the noise, for it heralded new mysteries. I caught myself glancing over my shoulder. The vicar continued to stare up at the steeple, and although his expression seemed to hold more fear than wonder now, he somehow picked up enough pluck to say, Should we go in? and produced the key to the tower door from his dressing gown. Jove, no! I all but yelped, half out of fear, half out of the experience of these things. I crept to the door and put an ear to it. For a moment I could hear nothing but the rapid-fire pulse of my own blood, then faintly, as it seemed, from far away there came a murmur as the rushing of wind, growling about the top of the tower. Can you imagine how I felt standing there, in that sudden silence on that still night, listening to the wind blowing inside a bell tower? As I listened, the wind noise grew to a howl, to a wail, to a sound that was almost a voice until I saw it my mind's eye gusting down the staircase from the belfry, heading with a purpose towards the tower door. I pulled away smartly, and for a moment I thought the door bulged slightly towards... Then all became very quiet. I moved cautiously back to the door, but could not bring myself to touch it. I simply funked it. Do you recall what I told you about the gateway case? How I had the queer knowledge that something huge and soft was pressing up against my bedroom door? This is how I felt then, standing there in the utter quiet of the night. Something was on the other side of the door, huge and rotten and dangerous. I thought then of Carlson, the missing steeplekeeper, and grew sick. The vicar and I stood there for another ten minutes, although nothing further happened, and eventually we returned to the house. Perhaps I should have taken up his offer of opening the door, but something seemed to tell me not to, something which I knew to be more than just plain fear, do you understand? I asked him what he knew of the history of the church and its tower, and once back in the vicarage and ensconced in his study, he told me some rather curious things. St. Giles, it appeared, had been founded in the twelfth century, but due to a somewhat unusual number of natural disasters down the years, the only part of the original building remaining today was the tower itself. But even the tower suffered damage on various occasions, and was largely rebuilt following a tremendous storm in 1577. The vicar showed me a contemporary account of the storm. A great tempest, the like thereof hath seldom been seen in the world with cracks of thunder that did quake and stagger the church, was accompanied by a purplish nebula which did enter the building, killing many, and sweeping away many whither they were never perceived of again. There had been one bell in the tower since the earliest days. This ancient instrument had been removed when the present ring of eight bells was installed in the 16th century, not long after the Great Tempest. 
The next morning, feeling much braver, we returned to the tower door where the vicar ushered me into the ringing chamber, a lofty room some twenty feet in height. It gave me a queer feeling to stand there in that room where something monstrous had been only hours before, although there was not the least indication that anything had happened. Eight bell ropes descended in a circle from holes in the wooden ceiling and were gathered into the center on a kind of metal claw from which their loose ends hung. Beneath the ropes were eight small mats neatly laid out. Even the wooden boards setting out the achievements of past bell ringers hung straight upon the walls. The room was not quite square. The two corners facing me were cut off, one to accommodate a door. Next to this, a larger door festooned with spare bell ropes stood open. Through it I caught a glimpse of the interior of the church and the carved stone front. That leads to the stairs, said the vicar, indicating a closed door. It's usually kept locked. I have one key, and Carlson has had the other. The door gave on to a narrow spiral stone staircase, which was surprisingly free of dust, and so steep that no more than a dozen feet ahead were visible at any one time. With my memory of the night before still fresh in my mind, you might well imagine with what thoughts I climbed the narrow stone stairs. After fifty steps, I found the belfry door. I entered, finding myself on a platform above the smallest bells. All eight were mounted onto wheels in wooden frames and looked as though they had been crammed at random into the space available, although I suspect there was reason in their arrangement. The bells hung demurely down, allowing safe access, but there was very little space below for closer inspection, and I had to take care climbing down the iron ladder which was fixed to the wall. Edging past the massive bell frame, I was startled by the sight of great gouges in its solid oak beams, put there by the bells when they had swung insanely the previous night. Staring down at those marks made in ten-inch-thick beams and thinking of the kind of wanton force that must have been loose in the belfry certainly made me feel a precious little chap. Close to, I could see what massive instruments the bells were. I was standing next to the largest, the tenor bell, and a huge brute made of dull gray metal. In the sunlight which filtered through the louvers, I could see each bell bore a name and as I read them, I whistled softly in amazement. Their founder had invoked some uncommonly powerful ones. The inscriptions I found were also of an unusual character. In hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer, followed by a founding date, 1578, and an unmistakable pentacle was one I found particularly queer. It brought back to mind a line from the Sigson MS, Bells of pure forge ring true, and true is very fear to the black heart of the demon. There was no marks upon the bells that I could find, although they must have been hit with enormous force to make them clang the way they had. With hammer and probe, I sounded the walls of the belfry. Finding nothing, I descended the staircase, sounding its walls, and carefully examining each step, a slow business, taking two or three hours, and in the end, finding nothing. It was noon when I reached the bottom. The walls of the ringing chamber seemed solid enough as well, but the measurements I took inside and out showed discrepancies. Do you remember my first impressions of the steeple? 
that it had a singularly askew appearance? Up until now, I was quite unable to account for this. But as I made a plan of the church with these measurements, I began to see that the tower was in fact two towers. A square one on the outside, with a pentagonal one within. You can imagine how I felt at this discovery. It was, in essence, a pentacle lacking what Sigson called Ye Five Hills of Safety, one of the most dangerous shapes there is, for it can serve as a focus for the abnatural, like the ring in the gateway case, you remember? For an instant, I was seized by the horrible and mad fancy that the church was no wholesome godly edifice, but something built for wicked purposes. I quickly realized how far-fetched that thought was. It was more likely that the tower was merely the center of a protective pentacle, and, if so, its points could readily be found. I took up my pencil again and, on my plan, extended the line of each of the five sides of the pentagonal shape until they intersected, forming the familiar five-pointed star. If my notion was correct, I should find five markers, one directly opposite the tower door, two in line with it, and two inside the church, somewhere near the back pews. Now that I had some idea of what I was looking for, the finding of the five points of the pentacle was done quickly enough, although the markers had been made deliberately unobtrusive. Though this discovery encouraged me, it also made me profoundly uneasy. What was it that was so dire that it needed to be penned in with such elaborate care? I recalled what the vicar had told me of the church's queer history of disasters, and you know, I think it was only then that I began to have an inkling of what I had run up against. My next step, naturally, was to experience at close quarters whatever haunted the tower. It was an experience I was not looking forward to. Nevertheless, later that afternoon I set to assembling the electric pentacle in the ringing chamber. I had thought to build it in the belfry, but that seemed somehow too close to the heart and strength of this matter for my initial observation. The vicar had demurred from joining me in the experiment, so I impressed upon him most strongly the importance of staying out of the church for the duration of the night, no matter what he might hear. At sunset I sealed the outside door and the door to the church with the first and eighth signs of the Sama ritual. By that time it was quite dusk, so I made haste and connected up the batteries to the electric pentacle, letting its weak blue glow shine in the growing darkness of the ringing chamber. I had enhanced the protective powers of the pentacle by twisting its tubes round with a particular vine I had found growing in the vicinity and tying special knots into the vine at various specific intervals. As that silent garden business demonstrated, certain species of plant life can attract entities from the outside, although, if used in the right way, they can also be powerful elements in a protective barrier. I sat in the center of the defense, facing the open door to the belfry stairs which showed as a darker patch in the overall darkness beyond the glow of the electric pentacle. If trouble was to come, it would come down those ancient stone steps. I placed my camera and flashlight, along with my revolver, beside me where I could snatch them up at a moment's notice. Waiting, as you chaps know, is almost the worst part of this sort of business, where one's mind conjures up all manner of dreadful things from noises and fancies. 
and many's the time for the first few hours that night that I peered behind me with the distinct impression of something creeping at my back, or that a giant spider overhung me and was about to drop upon me from out of the darkness. This was all nerves, of course, but around one o'clock a distant sort of clang made me look up sharply. Naturally, I could see nothing, but I was not prepared to put down the instance to imagination. There had been a sound, a metallic sound from somewhere far above me. Something in the belfry had stirred. For many more minutes nothing further happened. Then the sound came again, faintly, followed by another clang and another getting louder. By the glow of the pentacle I could just make out the bell ropes directly above me and saw that they were wriggling. Then the bells began to ring in that same chaotic clangor I had heard the previous night. On and on it went for several minutes, recalling to mind what the vicar had said about something running amok up there in the belfry. I can tell you, it was not a comfortable thought to have while sitting there beneath that madness of bells. When the wind began to blow, I felt it long before hearing it, as my ears still rang even though the bells had stopped two or three minutes before. It was a cold wind, and it was howling with all the noise of a storm blast. And there, in front of me, slowly descending the staircase from the belfry, came a tall but indefinite darkness somewhat blacker than the surrounding shadows. Jove, how the sweat stood out on my forehead. Can you imagine how it felt sitting there watching the slow approach of this thing, and all the time wanting to run but daring not to? As this darkness filled the doorway, the mad thought rushed into my mind that it was about to burst into the ringing chamber and dash over the protective barriers of the pentacle. Instinctively, I pulled back, and for a moment lost that moving darkness amongst the shadows. Presently, I saw it again, now in the ringing chamber with me, slowly circling the pentacle in a clockwise motion, the opposite direction to that which the wind now blew. I hove myself around to watch its progress, unable to bear the thought of something like that at my back. As I turned, I picked up my camera, uncovered the lens, and aimed it where I thought the thing was, and fired off the flashlight. In the great glare I glimpsed a purplish cone which seemed to be spinning apex down, and though I could get little in the way of details, I thought there had been a protrusion upon its surface. After that, I simply sat in the middle of the pentacle, half-blinded for two or three minutes by the flash. When my sight eventually returned, I swung about this way and that on my knees to locate the thing. It was once again more of vague dark against the shadows, and I had the impression that it had made a complete circle of me while I had been blinded. Then, in what I can only describe as a loathsomely deliberate manner, it began to move backwards along its path, and with this the wind bunched up and began blowing the other way. Halfway back along its track, the cone merged into the darkness and was lost to sight. Not knowing where it was threw me into something of a panic, for I well remembered the utter force it had used on the bells. But in a moment, I once again spotted it drifting past the outside door, and I breathed a sigh of relief. For the rest of that night I traced its movements about the ringing chamber through either direct sight or, when it slid into deeper shadow, by the reversals of the wind racing about me. At one point it appeared to spend quite some time in the vicinity of the connecting door to the church 
and I suspected now that it was baffled by the Sama ritual signs I had left there. But a half an hour later the door was wrenched violently open as if by a concerted effort, followed by a garble of indistinct voices which echoed in the ringing chamber for many minutes. I caught no words, but the tone seemed to be one of acute hostility mingled with not a little fear. It occurred to me then that if the cone, given time, could open a door guarded by protective signs, might it not also, given time, penetrate my defenses? Such were the way my thoughts were running now as I sat in that dreary wind, watching and listening. And all the time the cone kept circling me as if probing for weakness or openings. Sometimes it moved through the darkness by the walls, and sometimes it was so close it practically touched the pentacle. On one of these occasions I saw my worst fears come true as it made a determined effort to cross the barriers, pushing up against the pentacle until it almost leaned over me. I fell back and yelled with sheer funk, but at the last moment the thing was thrown back with a queer distortion of its shape and a burst of noise I believe now may have been incoherent human voices. The incident had lasted less than five seconds. Nevertheless, it gave me a ghastly fright, as you well may imagine. Immediately after this, there came from the deep in the darkness a noise that was something akin to laughter. Though this may have been a trick of the wind which continued to rush about me, first one way, then the other. Two or three times that night, while the thing was lost to sight, I thought voices called to me from various parts of the room. No words were ever distinguishable, and I was never really sure whether these two weren't tricks of the wind or imagination. The last time I saw the cone was just as morning was putting daylight through the stained glass windows above the outside door. Once again, I thought it was spinning, but it moved so quickly through the gloom to the stair door where it ascended and was lost in the spiral. The wind swirled after it, howling and crying up the staircase. There was a moment of silence shattered by the chaotic clangor of bells, but briefly this time in defiance or anger at the strength of daylight. Then all was still and quiet again, although I did not stir from the pentacle until it was well and truly morning. The vicar was waiting outside the tower door. I must have looked dazed and nervy as I felt, for at once he took my arm and walked me back to the vicarage, all the time repeating, My dear fellow, my dear fellow. He sat me down in an armchair where I waited for my nerves to steady, and I was thankful that he did not ply me with questions, but simply made me coffee and sat quietly while I drank it. A good chap, I remember thinking. After that I told him I would go to my room for a sleep, which I did, though I lay awake a long time before rest finally came to me. I waked at noon and set to converting a corner of the cellar into a dark room where I developed the photograph. A queer feeling grew on me as I watched the image appear and I realized what it was. The strange inscription on the bells came back to me at that moment, along with the sheer ferocity with which the bells had been attacked, and as soon as the print was dry, I took it up to the vicar. But before showing it to him, I asked what it was about the church now that was different since the time the eight bells had been installed in the 16th century. He could only think of the fact that Carlson had introduced a new ringing method. Exactly, I said, and showed him the photograph. The next day, he assembled his bell ringers and told them the old methods were to be reintroduced into the tower, 
I can honestly say I have seldom seen happier faces than those which greeted this news. They've been ringing the old method ever since, and the tower is once more quiet at night. Karnaki paused and reached down beside his chair. Now, I suppose you would like to see what the photograph showed. Rather, said Taylor. Karnaki handed in the print, and as he studied it, a queer look came across his face. Without a word, he passed it on, and the effect was repeated with Arkwright and Jessup. When it came to me, in the same wordless manner, I saw the cone standing on its apex and tilted slightly, blurred at the edges as if rotating at amazing speeds or consisting of some insubstantial matter. But the worst part was the protrusions which Karnaki had mentioned glimpsing. They were human faces in various states of anguish and fear, and most seemed to have been in the act of shouting or screaming. The vicar identified the topmost face as Carlson, said Karnacki grimly. I handed back the photograph. How can this have happened? I asked, stunned. I simply don't know how, said Karnacki, knocking the ash from his pipe into the fire. Nor do I know what precisely, although I hope to soon obtain a copy of Hoffman's rare monograph, Vortex Phenomena and Intelligences, which may help make daylight of the point. The only thing I can tell you at present is how the cone was kept dormant, and that, of course, was by the bells. The pentagonal tower kept the cone confined, but it was the bells, or rather the methods rung, which had kept it from materializing since the 16th century. When Carlson changed the way the bells were rung, he changed what I believe was an ancient bell-ringing spell of banishment. I will not draw moral conclusions. Carlson was right in his own small way to see the need for change for we live in an era of change. But it does show that in the midst of the everyday and the commonplace, there are traps we would not even dream of, eh? Karnacki stood up. Out you go now, he said in his usual friendly fashion, and, shaking each of us by the hand, ushered us onto the embankment. I don't know about the others, but I took a longer way home that night, for my usual path, would have taken me past too many church bell towers. That was Rick Kennett and Chico Kidd's The Steeple Monster, as read by Tales to Terrify's own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator and an associate editor right here at Tales to Terrify. He enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with a husband, cat, and dog. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.